Here we go. Can I pray once more? (laughs) I thank you for your good gifts. And I pray that you would help us to walk in truth and in love and mercy. That's all. In Jesus' name, amen. We're in a series in the Proverbs. It's a book about wisdom because this life needs more than data. It needs to know how to apply it, and that's what wisdom is. And no series on the Proverbs or on wisdom would be complete unless we at some point talked about what it says about sexuality. If we can't talk about it here, we can't talk about it anywhere. And if we don't talk about it, we are a people marooned because it's easy to have all sorts of information that's just flat out false. We need guidance. And if we don't have that guidance, we're also deprived of the one thing that wisdom is actually ordered unto. We don't seek wisdom for the sake of wisdom. We seek wisdom for the sake of the life that comes with it. Proverbs is about over and over again that you might know what is life. And wisdom is the way into it. And surely then we must talk at least at length, at least once, about sex. Now, I need to offer a prefacing statement. It was hard to know what should the scope of this sermon be. It could be totally unwieldy, and we're going to say enough to begin with. There will be things that I'll probably leave out that you wished I'd covered. There will be things that I've said that I probably wish I will have said better. And there might be moments when I um, unwittingly diverge uh, from this uh, tightrope of trying to live in a balance of both lightness, because we, we got to laugh about this a little bit. If you don't laugh about it, you don't get it. But we also got to be properly sober about it too, because I know in any given room, there is a great deal of confusion and sorrow and pain, if not abuse, all having to do with sex. And so I got to walk that line. And so I am asking you on the front end for your grace, for your mercy. And because there's plenty to talk about, you want to come talk about it more afterwards? I am here until they lock me out. That's what we're going to do. I want to set up what we find in the Proverbs by, one, showing you a clip that I think kind of captures where we are as a culture, but also captures, I think, how you and I might even think about sex and sexuality if nobody ever said anything else, ever said anything about it to us also. And this clip is from a very popular show. I'm a little bit even ambivalent about showing it because I, I know they say it's great writing. Sometimes the, the-, the thematic themes uh, maybe override some of that good writing, but, but nevertheless, it's a short scene. I won't set it up. Just here's where we are. I think you're happy to see me. Well, take a good look. I have to be on my way. Are you working? Yes. Oh, that's too bad. I'm going to Palm Springs. You should come with me. I don't know about that. Why would you deny yourself something you want?
(laughs) Just like that. Why would you deny yourself something that you want? It's kind of how we think about it. It's kind of where culture is. Why, if uh, at least in that moment, the intimation is that your body is saying yes, but something about you is saying no, uh, who gave us the crazy idea that you should ever say no to something that your body says yes to? Where, where does that come from? That's kind of where we are as a, as a culture, if not in ourselves. But to maybe act as a counterpoint to that idea, you may have read this week that the World Health Organization issued a statement in which they said that sexual addiction should now be classified as a mental health issue. I'm not here to debate the credibility of the World Health Organization. I'm not here to wander into whether or not you want to properly classify that as a mental health situation. I just cite it as an indication that in our world, somehow, where we are when it comes to sexuality, it's not just an issue, it's something more like a crisis. It's something more like an epidemic. And so where we find ourselves is sort of between these two, these two places, between the, the crazy idea that you might actually at times need to say no when your body is saying yes, and this crazy mess we're in with respect to now classifying an addiction as a mental health crisis. It's almost like we need a little wisdom about how to think about sex. And the Proverbs has some, and it doesn't hold back. Now, it is not a comprehensive treatise on all things sexual. It is, in context, the poignant plea of a parent to their kid. It's just that. And it should be taken in that spirit. But I think what it has to offer is something very helpful to us all, whether we are married or whether we are single. And I think we're going to learn three things about it. Three things that I think speak to understanding not only ourselves, but the God who has actually given us all good things. So if you're able, we're going to be reading from chapter 5. If you'll stand, we'll read. Proverbs chapter 5, starting in verse 1. My son... Be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She doesn't ponder the path of life. Her ways wander and she doesn't know it. And now, O sons, listen to me. Do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others, your years to the merciless, lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and body are consumed. And you say, how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. I didn't listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I'm at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. 
Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he's held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he's led astray. This is the explicit word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. The first thing I noticed that may be sort of anecdotal is that in verse 1 it says, My son, and by verse 7 it says, And now, O sons, which I take to mean that whenever you talk about sex, you draw a crowd. (laughs) Which in some senses is borne out by this room, because there are some faces of yours in here that I haven't seen since Easter. (laughs) You know who you are. I think this text is out to tell us three things that I think bring wisdom to bear when it comes to thinking about sex. And the first truth is this. Sex is a force too potent to trifle with. It is an impulse that is too powerful to mess with. And if you're not clear on that, if you were just to take word count as an indication, the majority of this passage has to do with warning. It's bookended by warnings from the front end and the back end. And, and the warning is, is couched in the language of personification. It takes, a, it takes an idea and it dresses it in the form of a person. And so you hear referred on a number of occasions the forbidden woman, the adulterous woman. And that's, that's a metaphor. And I, I need to say that because I need to do a little sidebar here. Please don't hear in the personification of the issue at hand, that this is some way, in a veiled way, to sort of blame and shame women for all reasons related to sexuality. It is not. Don't hear it as such. In fact, this adulterous woman would not be of concern to anyone if there weren't something in the man to whom the person is addressing. The issue, the warning, does not lie in her. The warning lays in the nature of what is being offered. And by that I mean the way we understand that force from what you heard in verse 3. Listen again. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. All right. Honey? I love honey. My kids put honey in their tea. One of your elders of this church bottles honey every year. Great thing. Lovely thing. Tasty thing. And this oil... It would smooth the sin, the skin. <laughs> it would, ha ha, ha ha. It would, all right, enough. It would smooth the skin in arid climates. It would, it would make things beautiful. It would help it smell good. So oil, honey, great stuff. Why are we bringing that in here in the context of a warning? Because this parent to their child is trying to get across the idea that the that sex is so important a force that you don't mess with it because of the way we interpret it. That our bodies are such that we can interpret that impulse in such a way that it overrides all sorts of other things. It overrides all sorts of other truths and concerns that we have to take into consideration. We miss the forest for the trees. And it's not as if what's expressed here in chapter 5 of Proverbs doesn't have a certain analogy to it or a precursor to it, for surely it does. In Genesis chapter 3, you know the story. Eve and Adam are told, hey, eat from any tree you want, just not this one. Touch that, eat from that, 
It's bad. But what does it say in Genesis 3 about how Eve saw that tree's fruit? She saw that the tree was, what, good for food, and that it was, what, a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was, what, to be desired to make one wise. Wait a minute. Good, delightful, desirable had all the appearances of something that you would want, something that is good for you. But the appearances belied other realities that she blinded herself to as well as to Adam. It seemed good, therefore it must be good. And then what happens? Oops. Yeah, the biggest oops ever is what it was. And so what you see reflected in that narrative in Genesis chapter 3, you see spoken of very clearly here in chapter 5. It is not a warning about sex in itself. It is a warning about how you and I can interpret that moment, that impulse, to the exclusion of other realities. We obscure some things by latching on to one thing. And you know what? That is borne out by pure physiology. Because when it comes to sexual arousal, the hormone dopamine and the hormone oxytocin are both released whether you are aroused by your spouse or whether you're aroused by your neighbor's spouse. There is no little warning sticker on those hormones that say, warning, this endocrinological moment could be hazardous to your life. Ask your pastor if adultery is right for you. There's no label. There's no sticker. It's just there. And if we are blinded to that truth, if we are unaware of the potency of that force, then pretty soon we're just like the young lady in the moment. Why would you deny yourself something that you want? Isn't it clear? My wife and I, when we were dating, one night she looks me in the eye and she says, do you think you could ever cheat on me? And here I am in my 20s, I pause, quiet, thinking to myself, what's the right answer here? Oh, <laughs> uh, that was not in the book anywhere. And I said, yeah, I probably could. I could probably betray you. Uh, I don't know a lot about sex. I know enough about it to go, I could probably be overridden. And then I wondered how she was going to respond. <laughs> and she looked me in the eye and she says, okay, we can get married now. Why? Because she knew that if she were going to date somebody who didn't think they were capable of ever losing themselves, then they are bewitched by untruth. <laughs> they are, it, it, those who think they are incapable of, of sacrificing their integrity are the very people that are most likely to do so. Because sex is a force too potent to mess with. The warning, though, is something more than just being deceived by one's own impulses, by one's own hormones. The, 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 the parent here is trying to say that the warning lies on the other side of being deceived, on the loss that can accompany it. And so you hear in verses 4 through 6, in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander. She doesn't know it. Now that language is pretty stark. And some might listen to that and go, man, that is over the top. That's such Bible language. They so exaggerate, right? Death, really? Yeah, really. Like, hashtag me too. Hashtag church too. 
hashtag, whatever you want to call it, where there is rampant indulgence in these impulses that are strong because of the way we interpret them and then look of the carnage left in its wake. There is loss. There's too many stories of death. There's too many little deaths that accompany it. Um, I know that uh, I have uh, quoted and both shown you clips from this wonderful series on, on NBC called This Is Us. And you know it, it, it traces the stories of, of, of three siblings. And um, young Kate, uh, the 20-something woman who, who sings so uh, beautifully in her 20s, there's a, there's a scene in a recent episode where um, she ends up going to sleep with a guy that she actually discerns as a married man in the midst of it. And when at the end of the day, she, she says, you're married, aren't you? And, and he kind of confesses that he is. And so he asks her, so why did you do this? Why did you sleep with me if you knew I was married? And, and she says, because I was just tired of life feeling like things weren't right. And implicit within her statement is the idea that maybe this would make it feel like things were right. But even as she says that, she betrays her own sense of, you know what, it, it might have felt right for a moment, but it doesn't feel right, and it probably feels a little worse now. And so whatever hope I had, I feel a little like I have less hope. I don't tell that story to shame. I tell that story to warn. Because that's sort of the loss that can come with it. A loss maybe with self-respect, maybe a loss with how it can wreck a marriage or it can wreck a family. And, and, and if, if you haven't been reading about the way in which pornography and the research into it has shown for its ability to rewire our brain in such a way that it makes us more incapable of cultivating real intimacy and relationship, then you haven't been listening. Because that research is out there. Um, Naomi Wolf uh, is a journalist for any number of publications, including The New Yorker, and about 15 years ago, um, she wrote an article called The Porn Myth. And uh, the myth that she took up was the idea that if you inject pornography into an ecosystem, as it now is the case like it never has been before, that that will sort of rev men's libido up and they will finally be kind of engaged to have real sex with their spouses or their partners, when in truth... Uh, according to her own observation and discussions and, and research, is that it didn't do more to increase the intimacy, it actually diluted it. Such that in her own words, or in the words of the men that she spoke with, now, now, now our spouses are just bad porn. And now whatever mystique or mystery I might have once thought about what sexuality is, now it's not mysterious anymore, it's, it's not mystique. It's what it is. And so if I might, you know, briefly apply this point in a little bit. Uh, if you're caught up in pornography, a strong delusion, one way out of it is to tell someone. And I hope that you would if that describes you. You can tell me and you will not find an unsympathetic ear. You have to tell someone as well as crying out to the Lord. Because it's that powerful. It's that strong. It's that potent a force. And it's that much harder to simply release. Now, um, let me say this. I know there are a lot of kids in here. And um, I know you've heard me, you're kind of 
figuring it out. Like pastor saying, I should really be careful about sexual impulse. And I would, I could imagine you saying back to me, if I gave you the floor, you would say, man, okay, great. But look, you don't know how hard this is. You don't see all the ads that pop up on every screen that I seem to be seeing these days. You don't know what they're talking about at school every week. You don't know the kinds of pictures that they're sending on Instagram. And you don't know what kind of thoughts pop into my head that I didn't even already, you know, I didn't even ask for. I know that's what you might be saying to me. And believe me, I feel your pain. (laughs) I know where you're going. I know what that's like. Let me borrow a phrase from Martin Luther to help you understand about what to do with all those things that you have no control over, so it seems. Martin Luther, in terms, in a, in a conversation about sexuality, he says this, um, I may not be able to keep the birds from flying over my head, but I can keep them from making a nest in my hair. Which is a way of saying, yeah, I know there's a lot of things that you're exposed to that like, you're being bombarded with, and it's just coming whether you sought that out or not. But it's kind of like, what, what do you do then? There are certain choices that you can make that can keep the birds, as it were, from nesting in your hair to make it more of a challenge than you ought. Sex is too potent a force to trifle with. That's the first point. And, you know, if you're a visiting today and, and if you walk in here and you kind of feel like, uh, I'm not really sure why I'm here, but I thought I'd just come. You might be thinking, yeah, that's what I expect to hear. You all think that sex is just sort of this evil thing, this necessary evil, this tolerable thing. At which point I would say, no, nope, uh, you weren't really listening. Because at the middle of our paragraph here, there's something quite different. Yes, we learn that there is something profound about the force, and we can't trifle with it. But the second thing we learn is this. Sex is too beautiful a gift to neglect. It's too beautiful a gift to neglect on the basis of the testimony found in this chapter. Yes, the chapter is bookended by warnings, but in keeping with the way Hebrew poetry and prose likes to go, usually they put the most important stuff in the center. And what's at the center of this passage is not a warning. It's more in the metaphor of feasting, of drinking to satisfaction. And in verses 15 and 16 and 17, you hear, first of all, an encouragement. An encouragement from this parent to their kid when they say, Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone, not for strangers with you. It's all deeply evocative and metaphorical language. It obviously is harnessing the idea of water. Water's a big deal. If you were going to drink and survive, you had to build your own cistern. The water would come into it. You don't want to drink muddy water. You want pure water. What's, what's, why invoke all of that? The encouragement here is specifically dealing with the context in which one might seek to have a sexual thirst satisfied. And in the language that you hear here about where do you find it satisfied, you find it, quote-unquote, from your own cistern. That which is uniquely yours, that which you uniquely share. That you don't find that sexual thirst satisfied in a public place in which you have nothing invested and they have nothing invested in you. That you find that thirst addressed in a context that is yours and yours alone, available to no one else. 
Um, I think the, the metaphor is pretty straightforward in what it is arguing for, even in that language. That there is a sexual intimacy, it is a real thirst, it has real potency, but it's to be found in that uniquely and tightly shared bond that is shared by only one other. My, um, my beach read this summer is a novel by Mark Helprin. Uh, he's written a book called A Soldier of a Great War. It tells about this Italian officer by the name of Alessandro. It, it uh, covers the whole arc of his life. And at one point in the telling of the story, he is a very old man, but he's still full of vigor and robustness. And he's walking um, like 20 kilometers. And he just happens to be walking with this younger man in his 20s. And the, the younger man says, are you sure you can keep up? And he says, just watch me, right? But in the course of their walking along, Alessandro feels free to sort of share some of his wisdom that he's learned over 70 years of his life. And in the midst of their walk, he says unto this young man, you don't do things by halves. If you love a woman, you love her entirely. You give her everything. You don't spend your time in cafes. You don't make love to other women. You don't take her for granted. Do you understand? The vision he is outlining there for this young man he has just met is the same vision that you will find in what is spoken of here in verses 15, 16, and 17. The context of constancy. That's the vision for intimacy. And, but then what happens in this passage, it's, it's as odd as it might sound to our ears. Not only is there an encouragement from this parent, there is also the expression of hope that is almost like a prayer but it is the articulated hope of a parent for the fullness of sexual intimacy for their kid. Listen and be amazed. Let your fountain be blessed. Rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Oh my gosh, that's in the Bible. Let's all let our collective blush dissipate a little bit. But to make this point, a prude this person is not. A necessary evil is not the vision of sexual intimacy that is being outlined here. It is the vision of great delight. And this parent is asking, hoping that their child will experience that um, expression of delight through all things. Naomi Wolf that secular journalist I just quoted you a little bit that wrote that article on the porn myth, she quotes that verse in her article. And right after she mentions verse 18, she says this, the ubiquity of sexual images does not free eros but dilutes it. The power and charge of sex are maintained when there is some sacredness to it, when it is not on tap all the time. A secular journalist and a religious Jew are on the same page about a vision for sexuality. That somehow you preserve the integrity of what it is by actually conceiving of it as something that's sacred, that is not to be shared widely in a variety of people, in a variety of ways, but in the constancy of one. And that it's not going to always be on tap. And you know what? In a marriage, sex will not always be on tap. And it ought not to be. Because there's something of its beauty in the power of its um, joy. And this is the parent's hope. This is the parent's prayer. This is the parent's hope for their, this, their child's experience of intimacy. And, and the language there is, is not ambiguous. It says, may you be intoxicated by it. 
The, the Hebrew word there is literally staggering around disoriented as a consequence of your sexual intimacy. Necessary evil? I think not. Delight is being spoken of here, but that delight is presupposing a context. Not in a variety of any number of people for whom you have, no pun intended, no skin in the game, but among those to whom you've committed yourself in love. Now, look, um, I know uh, it's church, um, I'm a pastor, um, it's the Bible, you would expect me to say that about the idea of marriage being that context, of that, that covenant of trust. But um, I know also that there might be many of us in this room that hear that and go, uh, yeah, but is it realistic? Like, for instance, let's just consider the state of marriage for a moment. It's not exactly high on the list of virtues to which we have given ourselves. Marriages fail as much as they triumph. So really, like, you're really going to put marriage as the sort of solution to healthy, wondrous, delightful sex, really? And, and you're really going to say that I shouldn't in, in, indulge myself in that until I've made a commitment? Because, like, isn't that unhealthy to the relationship? Isn't it best just to sort of get that out of the way and like that part of it before you even enter into the idea of commitment? Okay, look, there, is, there are premises underneath both of those ideas, and there's a certain logic that goes along with it. But um, let me invite into the conversation two resources the Center for Disease Control, and Cornell University. You know, those, those bastions of religious fervor, right? Right? Um, let's talk for a moment about cohabitation, of moving in with someone prior to, to making a commitment to them in marriage. The, the premise is, marriage is in such disarray. I've seen it happen too many times. You would think to yourself, I've seen the carnage. I've seen everything that comes along with it. Wouldn't it be better if we kind of tried things out, and then, if we think it works, then we commit ourselves. That's the logic. You learn a lot, and then you enter into a marriage. It's a more informed decision, you would think. It, it would guard against um, any sort of um, 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 arbitrary or, or a sudden change of the relationship. Well, okay, there's a certain logic to that, right? Okay, Center for Disease Control does this longitudinal study on cohabitation, and guess what? The data don't bear out the premise. you have a greater likelihood of the relationship ending after a certain number of years if you enter into a cohabitating relationship than if you enter into a marriage. It's just the nature of the data. They're not making any, believe me, the CDC is not arguing for any religious perspective. It, it does, it very, gives really guarded, tentative suggestions about why, it, but they do present the stats. Now, doesn't it kind of make logical sense though if sexual um, intimacy is arguably one of the most vulnerable ways that you can be with another human, and your willingness and capacity to be vulnerable rests on your ability to trust the other person, then if there is a limit to that trust because you don't know if tomorrow they're going to walk, then doesn't that limit the trust of vulnerability with them? Doesn't that limit your ability to commit to them because you're just not sure because the limit of their commitment is, you know what, we're in the same room and we, we, we have the same um, mailing address, but that's about all that's really holding me here. It makes sense if there's a limit to one's trust, there's a limit to one's vulnerability. And what Cornell 
found explicitly was the earlier you begin a sexual relationship with anybody you have a relationship with, the less satisfying is the sexual intimacy later in the relationship. If you allow sexuality to form sort of a core of your identity with each other or the foundation upon which everything rests, it, it, it can't bear up the weight of everything else the relationship needs. Because sex is just one thing. And for whatever reason, it has this effect on your ability to enjoy it later. I can't explain that. I just know that Cornell and others are arguing for it. We quoted C.S. Lewis last week about first things first, and I think what he said last week applies as much today. You can't get second things by putting them first. You get second things only by putting first things first. If you allow sex to become so important that you make a second thing a first thing, you lose not only the first thing, now you lose everything. That's the argument that's coming out of the CDC and Cornell University. Now, um, Obviously, this is, again, reaffirming the idea that the delight we might have presupposes a context. And this might be sort of a quirky illustration to make that point, but um, there's a film called Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. And it's about this young couple who dated for a while, and then the relationship went south, and they broke up. Uh, but the movie tells of this organization, a, a scientific organization called Lacuna.inc, that if you go there, they will selectively erase whatever memories you want so that you never have to think about them. And so this young couple that broke up, they went to that company separately from each other and had their memories erased about one another so that they never thought about what happened. Well, as the movie unfolds, they meet each other again, not ever having known that they knew each other before. And what happens? They end up digging each other's chili. They end up really rejoicing in one another. And a whole day goes by, and they're absolutely delighting in one another's company and and companionship, and then somehow at the end of the date, they find each other's paperwork that they had been to the company. Why, why you go through files at the end of a date, I don't know. But, um, but somehow they came to know that they once knew each other. They broke up. They had their memories erased. And now, now they're in this bind. They've, they've come to rejoice in one another again, but now they know the past. So what are they going to do with their future? Watch this. Wait. What? I don't know. What Just do you wait. want, Joel? Just wait. I don't know. I want you to wait for Just a while. see anything that I don't like about you. But you right will. I can't. But you will. You know, you will think of things. And I'll get bored with you and feel trapped because that's what happens with me. Okay. Okay. goes fast and I know he didn't get down on one knee and propose to her to say can we get married but oh friends look what just happened there is 
is very much what accompanies every single couple that ever comes to the agreement that they're going to spend the rest of their lives with one another. That there comes a point where they say to one another, you know what, there are days we're going to feel bored. There are going to days we're going to feel trapped. There are going to days where we're going to like, why did we do this? And yet they say to themselves, okay, I'm in. I won't go. Come what may. That is the context for commitment. That is the context for being able to trust somebody to the extent that you will give yourself to them with full vulnerability. And that is the context that allows for the delight that this parent is trying to share with their child. That's where it goes. It's too much of a gift not to neglect. Life is obviously born from it, but it also renews our sense of why we were first united to one another. In the wake of our relationships, when they are hard, it forces us to fight for our relationships so that they might be stronger. Because it's too beautiful a gift to neglect. At which point then I have to sort of apply it in this way. If you're married, have you dispensed with that gift? Have you put it on a shelf? Now, I know I'm walking into very delicate territory here, and I know that our lives and our seasons of life and our physical issues sometimes preclude that to be part of it, because I know there's just other stuff that you've got to be mindful of. But, but if there are relational issues that preclude that kind of intimacy, then it's to those issues that you probably ought to turn if sex is that much of a beautiful gift. It is not merely for the good of sex that you would turn to those issues, though. It is for the good of the relationship that sex provides. Now, I know that in marriages, there are moments in which one person wants it more than the other, and that totally makes sense, and it's everybody's experience. But if how we've seen gift sex here is as a gift, then we realize it's not something that one demands. It's not something that one puts upon another to insist that it be there. Instead, we ought to conceive of it as a gift that is offered. A gift that renews what we are. And that's why Paul will be pretty explicit and pretty countercultural in 1 Corinthians 7 when he says, The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And you'd expect to hear that, see that, because that's the Bible, right? But then listen, likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Wait, what? Okay, now that's progressive. My body is not mine, but my wife's? Yes. That's why she says stop eating all those potato chips. And not just for that. Because we're not our own. And that's why Paul will say, right after that, do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again. I do not lay this before us. Paul does not lay this before us as a guilt-ridden effort to force people into something that they, that they, you have to ask yourself, why do you feel forced into it? If it is a gift and it does renew, then awfully, where we can, to offer it in love for what it does. The, the best metaphor, I think, to kind of capture this idea of it being so potent a force it's not to be trifled with and so much of a gift not to neglect is the idea of fire. You put fire in my wood stove at home, it will warm my house, top to bottom. If I want to cook on that wood stove, I can, and then I will eat. And if I need a moment of serenity from all the noise in my house, I will stare at the flames. It's awesome. But if I open that door and I get that shovel and I take those coals and I throw them through my living room, I have just burned my house down. 
You think of sex in that way. Inside the confines of where it's expected and where it's intended, it is beautiful and life-giving. You take it out of there, it'll burn your house down. And that's why Friedrich Buechner kind of put it this way when he says, I don't know who Mrs. Grundy is. Contrary to Mrs. Grundy, sex is not a sin. Contrary to Hugh Hefner, it's not salvation either. Like nitroglycerin, it can be used to blow up bridges or heal hearts. It is not intrinsically evil. It's beautiful. It's a gift. But neither is it your salvation. It is warm and wonderful. But it can also be devastating. Which means one last thing. If it's that potent and yet that much of a gift, then one last thing is true. If it is to be free, it must be in submission to something infinitely greater than itself. If sex is to be free of the misperceptions and entanglements that lead to loss, if it is to be free from the apprehensions and reservations that leads to neglect, then it has to be in submission to something infinitely greater than itself. Not just to the bare desire. We can hear, we've heard what will do happen there, possibly. But implicit with all those warnings, this parent is appealing to the child's self-interest. You heard them say late in the passage, um, why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the burden of an adulteress? There's loss that comes along with it and you ought to appeal to self-interest because nobody wants to be deceived. Nobody wants to give something that they're going to lose more from. Nobody wants to willingly enter into regret. So, so self-interest has its place. But, but this father, this mother, doesn't leave it at self-interest as the ultimate thing to which to be submitted. He enters into the widest context imaginable in which to set the idea of sexuality when he says this, For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He's calling their child to understand their sexuality as being before the eyes of the Lord. Yes, there is personal harm in saying no to this vision, but there is also moral offense. But there is moral offense because of all the personal harm and interpersonal harm it can do. And therefore it is calling us to submission to him into his eyes before whom we have to do. It is because the gift of sex and the gift of life for those reasons that God reigns us in to consider his vision. Submission, not merely to an ethic. Submission to a storyline. A storyline of the Bible that begins in Genesis 2 with a father, with a man, husband leaving his mother and father and cleaving to his wife that the two might become one flesh in Genesis 2. And the Bible ending in Revelation 19 with a marriage supper of the Lamb. A marriage supper of the Lamb coming for his bride. The Bible is bookended with a wedding and the communion that's implicit within those references. It's submission to an ethic. It's submission to a storyline. A storyline in the middle of which God discloses himself not simply as a divinity to be worshipped but as a husband to be loved. He calls himself a husband. Your maker is your husband, he says from the Isaiah. And as a husband who comes to reclaim a runaway bride. And what the Lord does, what he speaks there, he embodies most fully in the Son of the Father. Who in dying on a cross, it says, 
made his people his bride. That in taking upon himself the iniquities of us all, the iniquities that ensnare, as Proverbs 5 says, we become his bride forever, faithfully. That's the gospel. And that gospel comes to bear on the way we think about our sex. And some of you are thinking, oh Lord, are you heaping the guilt on me or what? Friends, I would hear to say to you, the context that you may not want to hear is actually the context that you desperately need to hear and would want to hear when you hear it. Because for those who have trifled with the potency of sex, like I have, like some of you have, the best news that you can hear is not simply how he warns, but how he means to take his, our guilt upon him that he might say unto us, be free. Walk in the freedom of what I have covered in you and listen to my spirit that you might walk in a new way. That's great news. That's great context. But for those of you who are single, who may still be wondering, why did I come today? How does this apply to me? I'm, I want my tithe back. Jesus reconciles us to the Father through his blood, but he also, by his life, reconciles us to what it means to be human. And if Jesus neither partook of marriage nor of sexuality, then he shows us very plainly that while sex is a good gift, it is not an ultimate gift. Any good sexual relationship begins with a friendship. And any sexual relationship ends in death by friendship. And therefore, I think it's not a stretch to say that the most important relationships we can have are those that are friendships, which is available to us all, single and married. Here's the deal. In the Book of Common Prayer, in the wedding liturgy, one of the vows that husbands and wives can say to each other includes this line. With my body, I thee worship. When Jesus comes to the table on the night he was betrayed, and he breaks the bread... He says to us in so many words, with my body, I thee cherish. Because with my body, you are forgiven. With my body, you are now belonging to me. With my body, you are now given my spirit that you might walk in a new way. It is by his death, by his body, where he comes to his most vulnerable moment on earth. To provide us a vision of how we might be vulnerable with one another. So I say to you, friends and visitors, whether you are old or young, whether you are single or married, whether you are addicted or free by the grace of God, come to this table. Not simply to hear of his love, but to be ravished by it. Because on the night that he was betrayed, he took that bread and he blessed it. And after he blessed it, he broke it and he said, this is mine. It's for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took that cup, and after supper, he said, this cup is the covenant in my blood. Drink it as often as you will, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Christ is our Passover lamb, and he was slain. That we might give him thanks for the gifts that he has given. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. When the servers come, I hope that you would take and hold them. We'll eat together as a family. This table is for sinners. For sinners who believe that Jesus is a great Savior. If that defines you, this table is for you. If you are not ready yourself to profess that, then I would encourage you just to 
to let the, the basket pass by, not to make a spectacle of you, but to invite you to prayer, to consider. If the servers will come forward, we'll distribute the elements.